0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. we we thank you again for your glory and grace that you are the lion of judah the first and the last the author of our salvation king of kings lord of lords we praise your name we praise your holy name father i pray that as we have this just incredible opportunity now after seeing these beautiful songs these powerful worship songs father to, to be kind of placed into this or just this feeling of worship this this place of worship, this desire to know you more. I pray that we would just continue that through in our time of study and as we open your word just a, a desire, Father, to know you more, to, to deepen our walk, to deepen our faith, to love you more, to trust you more, Father. I pray you do great things in our study. And, Father, as we pray every Sunday morning through the power of the Spirit, may we be transformed or changed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 16 this morning. Mark chapter 16, that's page 853 on the Bibles, right in front of where you're sitting. If you've got yours, we're happy for you to borrow one of ours this morning. If you don't have one, you take it home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. 853 is Mark chapter 16. This is our final week in our study of the gospel of Mark. We've walked through now for several months, beginning in Mark chapter 1, every chapter and most verses And we spent time just walking through, delving in, trying to understand, trying to kind of piece together this this beautifully profound life of Christ and what it means to us, why it matters, how it should affect us and and change us. And I meant to do something last week. I want to do it this week instead. I want to offer you a resource. I don't do this enough. I should do this more often. Uh, I read a good bit when I study and prepare and a lot of commentaries, and I probably need to bring you more resources if you're interested. I want to show you a picture of a book Uh, On the screen, it's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. If you're interested in learning more about the cross of Jesus Christ, this is your book. This is kind of like the industry standard. If you walked on any seminary in the world that's worth its salt and said The Cross of Christ, John Stott, people would know it. It's fantastic. Now, if you're looking for an easy beach read that's going to be light and fluffy, this is not your book, okay? Okay. If you're looking to delve into the atonement and who Christ is and why it matters, you should read this book. I would encourage all of you to do it. Wade through it. Oh, I don't read. It's too hard. Well, then just figure it out. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Push yourself a little bit, man. This is worth the read. You won't regret it. If you read it and like it, call me. I'll take you to lunch. I'd love to talk about it because I love this book. It's one of my favorites. John Stott is one of my favorite authors, by the way. If you see anything by John Stott, he's dead now, died several years ago with a pastor in England and a, a theologian. Anything by John Stott is always good. I would highly recommend the book. Okay, so at this point in our study, Jesus has been arrested, uh, falsely accused, beaten, led to the cross. We talked last week a lot about just the brutality of the cross, uh, the pain and the suffering and the anguish. And the purpose of that was to take your place. We talked about what the Christ meant of the cross meant and why it was important. That podcast is available if you want to go back and listen to all of it. But just to kind of catch you up to where we are at this point in our study, the last thing we studied last week, Jesus had died on the cross. Now, I just want you for a second, it's going to be impossible to do completely, but just for a second, try to envision and maybe be mindful and think about what it must have been like to be one of his followers. People that had followed him now for three years, had, had lived with him, had heard him teach, seen him preach. They'd seen him do miraculous, incredible things. They had seen the thousands upon thousands of people follow him. They knew he was doing incredible work, incredible ministry. All that they had hoped for, at least in their mind right now, is gone. You need to understand that. Like For the followers of Jesus at this moment between Mark 15, 16, after he dies on the cross... All hope is lost for them. I just want you to kind of understand that just for a second and let that sink in as we kind of jump right in now. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. At this point in our study, Jesus is literally dead on the cross. Mark 15, 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that's the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. By the way, just a side note, it was the standard practice of the Romans to leave a dead, decaying body on the cross for a number of days as a reminder to all the people that walk by of how you should and should not live. Pretty stark reminder that body hangs on the cross dead for several days and things that begin to happen to it. So it's uncommon for the body to be taken down immediately. But the Bible says that Joseph, who was respected and loved Jesus, takes courage and he goes to Pilate and asks for the body. Verse 44. So Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Like It's too soon, he shouldn't be dead yet. And summoning the centurion... He asked him whether he was already dead. Verse forty-five. And when he'd learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Jesus, excuse me. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, mother of Joseph, saw. Where he was laid. Now let's stop there just for a minute. I want to kind of pause and I want to think through this a little bit because we talked a lot last week about the crucifixion, why it was important, why it matters. I want to think and compare and understand this morning why the resurrection matters. right? Because for far too many believers, it's simply a story that happened, and you believe it happened, but it happened 2,000 years ago, and the significance and the importance of what it means to you now is lost on a lot of us. We're not denying its accuracy. We're not denying that it happened. We're just not quite sure what it means for us today and how we can really begin to use it and apply it into our lives. And so I'm going to give you some truth this morning that will help us understand why the resurrection still matters. Here's the first truth I want you to see. Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus actually died and rose again. The resurrection proves that Jesus actually died. And rose again. Now, as, as silly as that may sound to you, as elementary as that may sound to you, there are lots of people in our world that do not believe this truth. They just don't believe it. And we can show them scripture after scripture until we're blue in the face. They just don't believe it. They don't think it's real. They don't think it's accurate. So I wanted to spend just a few minutes kind of walking through something that I, that I hope helps you. But before I do it, I want to kind of state to you some truth and what I believe just to be clear up front. I believe that this Bible, the copy of the Bible that we have, is the absolute, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God from beginning to end. There's nothing in it that I don't believe. A hundred percent. And I'll go to my grave fighting for that truth. I hope you will as well. So I'm saying to you, because the Bible, in my opinion, the way I live, because the Bible states that Jesus lived and died and rose again. For me personally, in my faith and my walk, that's enough for me. I don't need anything else. I believe it. But there are people in our world that don't. There are people out in the world. When you go to work tomorrow morning, not everybody at your place of business believes this is God's word. So I think it's helpful for believers to say, listen, this is my foundation. This is my absolute truth. But there are other things in the world. There are other truths that I can point to. I can use reason and facts and logic as well, to at least make the case that this is true, hoping that a believer will say, you know what, I've never thought of that. Maybe that drives them to the point of studying Scripture. The Spirit speaks to them through that, and they accept Christ because of it. You understand? And so I want to give you just some truth, some facts, some reason, outside of God's Word, to help you out in the world kind of have this discussion, to be informed, hopefully to lead somebody faith in Christ. I'm going to give you a website. I think they've got it on the screen. If they could pull that up, coldcasechristianity.com. You ought to write it down. You ought to take a picture of it with your phone, do whatever you need to do, because it's an incredible website that really delves into the idea of resurrection. Now, here's why it's important. The guy that wrote the, the website, J. Warner Wallace, is a cold case homicide detective. That's his trade. And so what he does is he goes and solves these cases that have been cold for 20, 25 years, right? Somebody was murdered. They don't know who did it. They closed the case because they couldn't find the killer. He goes back and years and years later kind of resurrects all the evidence and begins to delve into what happened, into the truth. And he's really well known for solving a lot of these old cases. He's been featured on NBC Dateline. He's been featured on Fox TV, Court TV, many other places. And so he decided to kind of take his skills, to take his skill set and his ability and his training and apply it to the resurrection of Christ. Now, he's got a whole website, and so I'm going to have maybe five or six minutes to go through all these. I'm going to run through them very quickly. I would highly encourage you to go to that website. Spend some time on it. Spend 30 minutes, right? We all get on the Internet every day, right? Can we be honest at least? We all get on the internet at some point during that. You've got probably 30 minutes in your life that you could spend. Listen, you're going to spend it on Facebook. Don't spend it on this. Fair trade. At least if you go to this, you're not going to walk away mad frustrated like you do when you get off Facebook, right? So go to this, learn a little bit, challenge yourself. But I'm going to give you some truth I want you to see from this website that will help us understand the resurrection Give us some ammunition to kind of take into the world. One of the first questions is, did Jesus really die on the cross, right? There's a lot of people out there that will say Jesus is fictional. Uh, he didn't really exist. He wasn't a real man. You can't really prove he walked to the earth. And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of truth to kind of fight against that argument, fight against that perception in the world. Here's the first one. Pull that first truth up if you would. Many 1st century and early 2nd century unfriendly Roman sources. There's a list of them, and I'm going to show you tactics in just a second. And Jewish sources, Josephus, etc., affirmed and acknowledged that Jesus was crucified and died. Right. There are lots of examples outside of God's word, outside of the scripture, that point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Right. One of them is Tacitus. We have a quote from him. This was a Roman soldier, a Roman senator, a Roman historian. He wrote a lot about the history of Rome. Here's what he says not a believer. He says, Christus, right? That's Jesus from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, right? He's talking about crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators Pontius Pilate. So here's a Roman senator, a Roman historian, who says, listen, Jesus lived, uh, people followed him, The, the name had its origin, right, Christianity, he suffered the extreme penalty, right? He was crucified for what he believed. Go to the next slide. Wikipedia. I did this last week. So this is two weeks in a row I've used Wikipedia for the sake of the gospel. Praise the Lord. Here's what Wikipedia says. The scholarly consensus is that Taxius reference, one we just read, to the execution of Jesus by Pontius Pilate is both authentic and of historical value as an independent Roman source. Right. So we can verify historically. This is just one example. By the way, I'm telling you, I'm scratching the surface. I'm at 30,000 feet. If you want to delve into the weeds, there's dozens and dozens of dozens of other extra-biblical examples that speak about the death, burial, and eventual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, go to the next truth, right? Did Jesus really die? Well, we have some extra-biblical Roman accounts that he did. Here's the second one. The Roman guards faced death if they allowed a prisoner to survive crucifixion. Would they really be careless enough to remove a living person from a cross? Right? These are guys who were experts at execution. Now, as, as, as graphic and as, as strange as that sounds to us, that's what they did. That was their job. They didn't mess it up. They understood if they didn't do this the way they were supposed to do it, they were going to face punishment, possibly even death. There's no way they're going to remove a living person from the cross. Roman soldiers were experts in crucifixion. They didn't make mistakes and accidentally take one, someone down who had died. Go to the third one. Here's another truth about the life of Jesus Jesus disappeared from the historical record following his reported resurrection and ascension and was never sighted again as one might expect if he recovered from his wounds and lived much beyond the age of 33. There's no record of Jesus after his death. And we would expect in the Roman annals somewhere they would have said, listen, this guy came back or they faked his death or they stole his body or he didn't really die. Now he's walking around again and people know him. He disappears. So you got a lot of evidence here. So you got the evidence of the Roman historians. you got the evidence that the Roman guards never would have made this mistake. You've got the evidence that Jesus doesn't appear anywhere else in historical writings after his death. We can make this case, I believe, outside of God's word. And again, this is absolute authority. But outside of God's word, we can make, I think, make a compelling case historically that Jesus really did live and he really did die. He wasn't a figment of somebody's imagination. Now, the second thing that people say sometimes is, okay, maybe he really did live. Okay, granted, we'll say that. Maybe he really did die. Maybe he really was crucified. Okay, we can kind of make that case historically. But there's no way he actually came back. There's no way he really kind of came back to life, right? So the disciples were obviously lying about the resurrection. Maybe they even stole his body, right? That's kind of one of the things that the Jewish leader said. So there's this kind of sect of people that believed and will still argue. Listen, the disciples made it up. They're lying about it. Of course, he died and was buried. But then they stole his body and lied to cover it up. Here's four truths that kind of counter that claim. Here's the first one. Put it on the screen for us. The people local to the event. Pause. Is that the one I have? Go go back one. That's it. There we go. That was number two I was about to read. This is number one. The Jewish authorities took many precautions to make sure that the tomb was guarded and sealed, knowing that the removal of the body would allow the disciples to claim that Jesus had risen. Right? Remember now, let's think about this honestly and accurately, historically. The Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership wanted to do one thing with Jesus, get rid of him. Like, they didn't want him hanging around. The absolute last thing they would have wanted was to crucify him on the cross and then everybody believed that his body came back from the dead and he's still alive. That's the last thing they wanted. So they took great caution and precaution to seal the tomb, guard the tomb, be sure nobody could get the body. There's no way a group of untrained disciples who, by the way, I told you a few minutes ago to kind of think about how they felt, scared to death had run to hide, are going to mount some sort of an attack against the Roman guards, steal the body of Jesus. It's just not realistic. It's just not. If you're, if you're intellectually honest, you can't say that's something that really probably could have happened. Here's another truth, the second thing. The people local to the event would have known it was a lie. Remember, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were still 500 people who could testify to having seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. So Paul writes about this. Mark is written just a few years after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. The other Gospels are written. The New Testament is written. There's still all sorts of people alive that had seen this, that could verify this truth. If Mark and the disciples had lied about this and made this up, this book never would have been passed on down generation to generation. People wouldn't have given their lives for it. It would have been circulated. If you kind of go back and study the history of the canon of Scripture and where it came from, the, the, one of the things that happened in the beginning is that these letters, remember Mark just wrote one letter. He didn't send it to the printing press and 10,000 copies popped out. He had one letter on parchment paper. He would have sent that letter to churches and they would have passed it around and made copies and that's how the Bible began to expand and grow. But these people would have gotten this letter and if they have read it and been a lie, they never would have passed it on. They would have used the fake news line, right? We use that now. They would have used it then. This is not real. We're not going to pass this on. He really didn't come back from truth. He really didn't come back from, from, from the dead. We know this is a lie. We know it's not true. We're not going to pass it along. Third thing we see, the disciples lack the motive to create a lie. Go to the next one, I think. Yep. The disciples lack the motive to create such a lie. What would it have gained them? Now, this is a fascinating idea to me, and I don't have anywhere close to the time I need to do it. And talk about it. But you should do some research. on you know, One of the things the guy says on the website, he goes back and he looks at these crimes that have been committed, and there's motives for people to commit the crime, and there are motives for people to lie, and there's kind of this standard set of motives that it falls into. They have to gain something from it monetarily or gain some sort of power from it or whatever. None of those things fit with the disciples. But there's no motive for them to lie. Like had they stolen the body and lied about it, they know full well the Roman government would be after them. The Jewish authorities would have been after them. Another kind of interesting fact is that all of the disciples, according to church history, went to the grave, went to their death teaching this lie. Like they died for this. Now you ask yourself a question. If I, if I lied about something, would I be willing to die over a lie? Right, you'd think I lied about it, I lied about it, I lied about it, until they're about to escape. Okay, me. Okay, okay, I made it up. It's not real. It's not really what happened. That didn't happen with the disciples. And then the fourth thing, very quickly. The disciples' transformation following the alleged resurrection is inconsistent with the claim that the appearances were only a lie. How could their own lies transform them, transform them into courageous evangelists? Right? These guys were scared to death, had no idea what to do, had gone into hiding If they steal the body and lie about it, how does that embolden them to then go and begin to teach the truth? It's not consistent. If you are honest about this, right? And you're not going into it with a bias that he didn't really live, he didn't really die, he wasn't really crucified. If you're really looking at the evidence, it begins to point very clearly to one idea. Listen, he really did live, he really did die, he really did come back from the grave. Now, there's another section on hallucination. I can't get to that. I'm going to skip that one. Okay, Go to the one about the women as eyewitnesses. That's the fourth one. By the way, 500 people don't hallucinate. One might. Scores of people don't. But maybe the most fascinating one, the most interesting one, and the one that's very compelling to me, is that in the first century, women were not used as eyewitnesses. Right? When you go to the account, we're going to read it here in just a few minutes, the women are the ones that see the tomb. The women are the ones that go and tell the disciples. Go to that next comment, that next quote right here. In the first century, women were looked down upon. They were seen as less than men. Their testimony was not admissible in court. Go to the next slide. Here's how one scholar explained it. Jewish law pronounced women ineligible as witnesses. That the news had first been delivered by women was inconvenient and troublesome to the church. For their testimony lacked value as evidence. The primitive community would not have invented this detail which can be explained only on the ground that it was factual. Like if they wanted to make a case to the world, they would not have used women as their illustration. They wouldn't have used them as the first eyewitnesses. Because in the first century, the people that read that account wouldn't have believed it. They wouldn't have thought it was true. Why would the church use this illustration? Why would the church use these women as their eyewitnesses if it was not actually true? Now, I've given you, again, we've just flown through these, right? We've flown through these. There's so much more to say about them, so much more to think about them. I'm doing it to kind of just give you a big picture idea, but maybe to whet your appetite a little bit to go and read on your own, to understand on your own, to take the biblical truth that you already believe and know to be certain and build upon it. Strengthen your faith, strengthen your walk. Use it as you speak to other people and people that maybe don't believe to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith, in their faith and how they live. Okay, let's continue. Look at verse 1. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Right, we say that Jesus died, was buried, rose again. The Bible says that over and over. Extra-biblical historians have made that same claim. We see it in the facts and the evidence. Now let's take a look at what happens when the women get to the tomb. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. So when the Sabbath was passed... And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here's the second thing the resurrection does for us today. Number two. The resurrection demonstrates the power of God. The resurrection demonstrates the power of God. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give a very detailed account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection of Christ is found in other places as well, all through Scriptures, not just limited to the Gospels. In fact, a lot of the New Testament looks back at the resurrection. A lot of the writers of the New Testament, Paul especially, wrote a good bit about the resurrection. And so I'm going to give you a few verses here. And I want you to listen to a theme that's going to begin to emerge. And then we're going to explore that theme together. Acts chapter 3 verse 15. Peter is preaching his famous sermon in Acts to these people. And he says in Acts chapter 15, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Here it is, whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Like on and on and on, we get this picture in Scripture that God raised Jesus from the dead with great power. Now, here's what I need you to understand, right? This is the application for us because there's a disconnect here for far too many believers. We're saying, biblically, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the power of God, right? We probably already knew that. Here's the disconnect for us. Far too many of us don't understand that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power still available to believers today. Like, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, this is one of my failures. This is an area I struggle in. You may do the same thing. When I pray, sometimes I have this mindset, it's a sin and it's wrong. So you need to understand that. But this is sometimes how I think and sometimes how I even fall into this trap when I pray. I think about God as having this big jar of stuff he can do. Power, whatever. You call it whatever you want to. This is the stuff he can do. And it's almost as if I don't want to pray for the little things because I'm fearful it's going to use up a little bit of his power and then when I want something big, there won't be enough left to do anything. Like, God, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time praying on this little stuff. I'm going to save it up for when I really need something and something big's about to happen, then, and then I'm going to pray. So you've kind of got all that juice or whatever you want to call it, power to throw towards this other thing. That's an absolute misunderstanding of Scripture, by the way. I'm repenting to you of that. It's not true. But I fear far too many believers live like that. I'm not going to pray for the little things. God doesn't have time for me. God's not interested in these things. God can't do whatever. You just kind of fill in the blank. right? We need to understand, this is a a biblical truth, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is still available to you today. And if just think about it like this. If God can raise Christ from the dead, don't you think he can work in your heart to change you? I mean, if God has the power to raise Christ from the dead, doesn't he have the power to work in the heart of that loved one you've been praying for for so long? We disconnect there for some reason. So I'm going to give you three things very quickly that help us understand the power of God and why it matters to us. We have them on the screen. The first thing, we find a living hope in knowing that God is powerful enough to work in our lives. that, That ought to bring you absolute hope and joy. You understand that? To know that God can work in your life and has the power to accomplish anything and everything He calls you to do ought to bring you hope. It ought to bring you joy. Secondly, we have the power to accomplish things we could not accomplish on our own. Right? It's often been said that God doesn't call the equipped, but He equips the called. Have you ever heard that? He doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. So, really, all he needs in your life is obedience. <laughs> right? Oh, God, I'm not good enough. I don't know enough Bible verses. I don't know how to share my faith. I don't, I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter. If God calls you, he's going to give you the power to accomplish what he's called you to do. It's real simple, it's not complicated. But for some reason in our minds, we've disconnected that. We need to be reminded. We've got the power to accomplish things that we could not accomplish without Christ. And then thirdly, we have the power to experience life in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. I hope you're not this believer, but have you ever met the believer that's just kind of, you know, down, trodden and... Not really happy and complaining and grumbling. That's not who we ought to be. Like we ought to be filled with this joy and this hope and this peace because of who Christ is and the power that resides in us. It ought to cause us to live differently. You understand that? It ought to cause us to demonstrate this power and to demonstrate this love and to demonstrate this joy. Like when you as a believer walk into the room, you ought to be the the most joyful, at peace, uh, happy person these people have ever seen. Not because of anything you can do, but because you've got the power of Christ working through you. Like if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can He make you happy? <laughs> if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can He give you a good attitude at work? Men, if God raised Jesus from the dead, can He cause you to live your life the way you should live it in the home with your wife and your children? Moms, if God raised Christ from the dead, doesn't He give you the patience you need to deal with your children? Man, we begin to really apply it to our lives and, and start making the connection between the power of God and how we live. It ought to change the way we think. It ought to change the way we act. It ought to change the way we perceive things. All because of the power of the Lord working in our lives. We've got to finish up. Mark 16, verse 6. Maybe the most interesting part of this text. There's two words I want you to see here in just a minute. They're fascinating. And he said to them, this is the angel. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen, right? Just matter of fact, right? Just can you imagine? Oh, he's gone. He's risen. I mean, the most incredible event in the history of the world, it gets three words there. He is risen. <laughs> he's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now watch this. This is interesting. Verse 7. But go. Side note. I'm not going to say anything else about it. But the calling of the Lord and the miraculous work of the Lord should never just sit dormant in your life. It should always cause you to go do something more. He doesn't say, but sit and think. He doesn't say, just be passive. Verse 7 says, but go, right? You've seen the truth. You know the truth. Do something with the truth. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Here's a third truth I want you to see very simply the resurrection offers forgiveness. Now, I want you to look at Mark 16, verse 7. Pull that verse up just for a second. Let's finish with this this morning. But go, right? There's the action. Do something about it. Tell his disciples and Peter. Now, here's an interesting thought for you Peter was one of the disciples. Why does the angel have to say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Why not just say, go tell the disciples? Let's remember just for a second what Peter had done the last few weeks of the life of Jesus. Peter was a guy that was bold and exciting and he kind of stuck his foot in his mouth oftentimes and said stuff he shouldn't say and he told Jesus, when Jesus first began to talk about going to Jerusalem, being arrested and killed, and then rising from the dead, Peter was the first one to step up and say, no, 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 no. no. not going to happen. It's never going to happen to you, Jesus. We're never going to allow that to happen. Fast forward several weeks, and, and Jesus tells Peter, listen, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. Never going to happen, Lord. And then we pick up the story. Jesus is in the courtyard. He's been arrested. Peter is there. And three different times, you remember the Bible tells us he denied Jesus. And then there's this, this beautifully painted picture of forgiveness and hope and love at the end of the book of John where Jesus and Peter are reunited. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I do, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I do, then feed my sheep. Right? Three times Peter denied Christ. Three times Christ forgave Peter. And here's why this matters. It does not matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what you're struggling with now. There's absolute forgiveness in Christ. The the, the one group of people, go back to that verse, go back to verse 7. The disciples and Peter, the the group that loved him the most, that surrounded him the most, that lived with him, that studied, the one group that you would expect to be with him at the end, turned their back on him. And yet he says, listen, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, here's, here's how I want to end this morning. Stacy, come on up, if you would. Y'all come on up. Team, y'all come up as, as the music begins to play here in just a minute. Here's how I want to end. I want you to kind of think through this. I'm going to leave it up right here. I want you to think through this verse. And instead of Peter, why don't you put your name right there? Like, go tell Adam that I forgive him. Go tell Amy that I forgive her. Go tell Drew that I forgive them. Go tell Russell, go tell Greg, go tell Matthew, go, go tell these people, go tell them that regardless of what they've done, of the mistakes they've made, of the mess that they've made of their lives, of all of us, the baggage that we all carry, it doesn't matter what you've done, go tell these people that I forgive them, that I love them, that I died on the cross and I rose again to offer them hope in the power of God, saving them and working in their lives to do great things let's pray. Father, we praise your name for the salvation you've offered us. We praise your name for forgiveness. Father, we are completely and utterly unworthy. We can't do enough nice things, enough good things. We can't say enough things to people in a kind way to make up for all the sins we've committed. And yet you sent your son to die on the cross. And when those that loved him the most turned their back on him, he still forgave them. Father, let that just lead us to an absolute place of repentance and love and worship right now. Father, forgive us where we have failed you. Open our eyes to love you and to serve you even more. Do great things in our midst right now. And we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for everything that happens. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. You can stand, altar is open. You come and pray, speak to me, respond as the Spirit leads you as we sing together this morning.